everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dardashe, the uh, podcast where we interview amazing and inspiring Palestinians about their lives and the work they do today. We're joined by uh, Somaya Awad, a Palestinian writer and organizer based in New York City. She's the director of strategy at the Adala Justice Project and is a member of the New York City chapter of the DSA. She's the co-editor of Palestine, a socialist introduction published by Haymarket Books. Somaya, welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks, Adam. It's really great to be here. Um, amazing. So, uh, so, Mary, before we get into your book and a lot of the amazing work you do in, in organizing spaces and the movement in, in, in the U.S., I wanted to ask you a bit about yourself, who you are, what your background is, where you grew up, and your connection to Palestine. So I was born in Amman, in Jordan, um, and raised there for the most part. I, um, I spent some time in Iowa City. My mom was doing her PhD in the early 2000s, so I lived there for a little under five years. But most of my time was in Amman. That's most of my childhood memories are, are there, with some in Iowa, sure, but, but mostly Amman. Before I get to what Iowa was like, I want to ask you about uh, life in Amman. And were your, were your family passing refugees? Um, that ended up moving there or expelled from, from Palestine to there? Yeah, so on my dad's side, my grandfather's originally from Nablus, from the villages around Nablus, Qura Nablus. But he moved to what became Jordan long before the Nakba and sort of established himself there. Um, actually, among Circassians, it's, it's a long story, um, but he was, he was an orphan. And then on my mom's side, um, her family's from Jerusalem, they're Dejanis. And in 1948, my grandpa left with his family. He was very young. He was five years old. And they went to Beirut, actually, because they had an uncle in Beirut. And they lived in Beirut as refugees. My grandpa's mother actually worked with Anurwa for a little bit. And then he went to AUB as a refugee. There were scholarships that Anurwa had. And then eventually way down the line, ended up moving to Jordan. Um, so for him, Jordan came later. And how, how did you connect uh, to Palestine as, as, a, as a Palestinian growing up in Jordan? Uh, you know, how, how, yeah. did it, how did it manifest uh, for you? And I know it can, it can come about in many different ways. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways to answer this question. Um, I think growing up, there is definitely, it was ingrained in me from all the stories um, and the politics in my household and certainly in my grand my grandpa's um, the, the the Jerusalem grandpa on my mom's side my other grandpa um, I I'd never met he died when my father was young um, but my grandfather uh, always talked about Palestine um, he was very political and made sure that we were raised with that an understanding of not just that he was a refugee that he couldn't return, he had never returned, and that we never went. You know, I've never been to Palestine, and neither has my mom. Okay. No. So we were constantly raised with, like, Palestine, Palestine, Palestine. And um, and not in just in a superficial level, but on a deeper political level in terms of, like, you know, discussing the different parties and factions, um, discussing the role of Jordan in all of this, um, discussing the role of other Arab states, whether it was um, Egypt under Mubarak, or it was Assad, um, et cetera. So I think that was very much a part of my upbringing. Yeah, I think people don't realize that are not extremely familiar with Palestinian history and the national movement, Arab regimes really shaped 
the national movement and, and its trajectory, whether it's where the PLO is based or what kind of support was, was extended to the different factions in the parties. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure that all, you know, was, was a, as of a, a mix of what you encountered and what was introduced to you by your father at a young age. Definitely, definitely, um, for sure. And, and, you know, I think Jordan plays a very interesting, contradictory role because mm-hmm. it both has, I mean, you know, this could be contested in whatever ways, but I think it's safe to say that the majority, at least in the early 2000s, of the Jordanian population um, was Palestinian in one way or another, uh, right? And um, that creates a particular responsibility or onus on the government to to treat the Palestinian struggle in a particular way, while at the same time maintaining its peace treaties with with Israel, right? Um, and this this cozy tie and this reliance on USAID, etc. But I think all of all of these all of these different things were, were definitely a part of my my up, upbringing and just sort of how I saw myself um, as a Palestinian. Um, with you know like I'm Jordanian as well. I have a Jordanian passport. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine my, my so I have my my father's family is in uh, is in uh, in Jordan. They're refugees from '67. My grandfather uh, managed to sneak sneak back in across the Jordan River to Jericho, uh, but but his his brothers and sisters ended up staying. So every time I go to Jordan and and then come back, it always breaks my heart to an extent because the person who takes me to the bridge can't come home and can't see his family on the other side of the river. Um, you know, it, it's so close. You see it all the time. So what, what was that like to you, for you for not being able to, to return, even being, even though being so close to, to Palestine? Well, I think it, it's interesting because I never, I never thought that it was possible to go like growing up. Like that wasn't even an idea that was introduced, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So it just felt like, like, yeah, I'm not going to go until Palestine is free. You know, it's, it was just kind of a, and my, my grandfather, um, he had never returned and, and had no interest in attempting to return um, because it meant having to go through, well, it meant having to go through the Israeli embassy, but also the checkpoints and all of that. And I think there's this particular thing that he would talk about where um, it's been so long and it's changed so much. Um, he actually... Uh, family in Jerusalem was able to find the house he grew up in and it's now some sort of clinic or something and I think there's this this uh, I don't want to say not shame not embarrassment but just very there's there's a heaviness to it of what it's like to go back to something that is so entirely different um, and that strips you of of your dignity and of your agency and of your power and so I think that at first I, I didn't quite understand why my grandpa wouldn't want to go back if, if he could, if they even let him in. Um, but in retrospect, it, it, it's understandable. It makes sense. Um, and it's it's so horrific, of course, on, on so many levels. But I think now, um, you know, now I'm like 26 and I I can't wait to go back. Um, and, and I hope that, that I'll be able to eventually if my immigration process goes as planned. Fingers crossed. Out of curiosity, is the is the the clinic uh, the the Jani clinic in Jerusalem? No, it's not. Um, well, the, the their house is not the Dijani clinic. It's actually it's it's some Israeli institution now. It's not. Um, yeah. 
Okay, I was just going to say that it was a very small world because I know cousins of mine, you know, were born in the Jani Clinic in Jerusalem. Oh, really? Um, that's, that's the connection I was making in mind. Uh, that's my mom. It is that the Dijanis are, there are a lot of doctors, aren't they? And my, my grandpa was a physician, so. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, mom, and so you spent, you spent some time in Iowa. What was that like for you? Yeah, Iowa. Um, Iowa. Iowa was, uh, we, we came right at, in, in 2000, so it was right before 9-11, and then 9-11 happened. And then the next four years were like leading up to the Iraq war and the Iraq war. And I think if we had come at any other time, I probably would have had a very different experience. Mm -hmm. But because we came at that time and with the launch of the whole war on terror, um, it was actually a very uh, political experience and I think really helped shape how I viewed myself in the United States. Um, because in the University of Iowa, which is where my mom was studying, it was one of the largest hubs of the student movement against the Iraq war at the time. And so I, I really vividly remember the protests. I remember student encampments on, on the college campus, even in the middle of winter in Iowa, winters are cold, um, but all the tents they set up. I remember we actually, my brother and I built um, out of snow, this like large, um, I don't know what to call it, not like a fort, but this large structure. And then we spray painted on it, no war. Um, and we were like, I was maybe like 10 or 11. Um, and the local newspaper came and interviewed us. And they were like, you know, where are you from? Like, why are you against that off war? Um, and at school, we were, uh, there were maybe like less than a handful of other Arab kids. Um, and so it was very known and certainly Muslims like who we were and what we thought. And um, my mom would come to the school and talk to people about, you know, Ramadan, about Eid, about Palestine. So I think all of that definitely helped shape um, how I viewed myself and really solidified, especially during the Iraq war, that like I'm, I'm an Arab in mm -hmm. Iowa. And I think that actually took time to really solidify because it was such a you know, university campus and all of this. But I think I was lucky that I was that that we were in this um, somewhat radical hotbed during during the anti-war movement. And how how much of a, of how much did that play a role in in shaping, I think, the politics of where you are now? It seems that you know, being ten, spray painting uh, on a on a on a snow structure is potentially your first experience at political organizing or disruption. <laughs> Um, how there are a lot of it that way, but I guess yeah. where, where, you know, how did that shape you and, and how did all those experiences bring you to where you are today? You know, um, at Adana Justice, part of the Palestinian movement and a larger, you know, progressive movement in the U.S. Yeah, so I think that definitely had an effect um, in, in helping me understand sort of the role of U.S. empire in the world um, and certainly in the Middle East. Um, and how I fit into it. Um, I also think that, and of course, Islamophobia, right? That was also like my introduction to Islamophobia um, in, in the United States. I think then going back to Jordan, um, we lived in Tabarbur, which is like a pretty working class area in, in Amman. And actually for high school, I applied to go to this new elite boarding school in Amman um, and was accepted as, as one of the, the 
you know, financial aid students, et cetera. Um, but I think that was also just as radicalizing, if not more, because it also helped me understand um, class and that it's not as simple as East versus West, um, that it's actually a lot more complicated because it's also about class and it's about what rung you fit in and how that determines your role in society mm -hmm. um, and whether you're listened to, how you're treated by the government, et cetera. So I think understanding that, you know, there's a rung of Arab elites that also functions to exploit workers and to prop up these corrupt authoritarian regimes, whether it's other Arab regimes or Israel, um, and that actually work with the United States, but also other empires around the world, that that's actually part of, of how the world is structured. Um, mm -hmm. And what it means to try to dismantle it and understand it means having to reckon with the fact that um, these rungs of society exist even at home. Um, and so, so I think that was definitely a very big experience for me, um, being, being at that school and just uh, understanding, understanding class within our own Arab society. Yeah, it, it's as someone who has never lived in Amman and is is a, a transient visitor. It 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 hits you in the face. Um, even then, even if you're around for a day or two, I think the, the discrepancy or the gap between the different classes that exists, and I can imagine what it must have been like to to ex witness that firsthand. Would you say that's kind of what brought you uh, to to socialism? Um, uh, is that, you know, the, the mix of experiences? Um, I think so. I think, I mean, I, I couldn't say no, right? I, I think that's definitely true. Um, I think also growing up with an understanding of uh, Palestine being situated in the context of the Middle East, not in isolation, also uh, really drew me later when I started to learn about socialism um, really drew me to to socialism because it was all about like beyond borders. It was about like, you know, class. It was about understanding that the Arab masses play a huge role in any sort of liberation for Palestine. So I think that's, I think that's, that's definitely true. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's really interesting because you, you look at the landscape of the Palestinian national movement and it was one of the chapters in the book that I really enjoyed um, looking at the Palestinian left, Palestinian socialist parties and here in Palestine today, you know, you have the whatever's, whatever's left of those parties. Um, they're very small and uh, they've been co-opted by the PA and the PLO. Uh, you know, I, I learned today for the first time that each political party registered in the PLO actually receives its operation costs from the PA. And, and that's, that's how they've been co-opted. Um, and this has uh, created a, a patronage system that has, I think, removed them entirely from, from their socialist and ideological roots. Um, obviously, the, the, those parties are shrinking, PFLP, etc. But I'm wondering, do you see a growing socialist um, movement within the Palestinian national political landscape um, that young people are starting to identify? Whether you see something that you know is happening much more in America or elsewhere, or is that having connections to, to Palestine? What are you What are you seeing? Um, I I think that it's difficult for me to comment on what's happening on the ground in Palestine. Um, 
and whether or not there's any sort of, uh, or to what extent socialism is being adopted or in, in intertwined. I think there's definitely various groups that have adopted anti-capitalism. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's entirely, you know, I think Al-Qaus is probably one of the first ones that comes to mind. Um, I think in the US, which I can speak to a lot more, uh, there's definitely a growing um, Palestine anti-capitalist socialist um, movement. Uh, I think that's 100% true. And it has to do with the fact that the left in the United States is, well, it exists, right? Like for the first time in decades, there is a left in the United States. Um, And it is, uh, for the most part, or the largest sections of it are openly and publicly socialist. And I think Democratic Socialists of America is is sort of where we see that. and this is an organization that's, for example, adopted BDS, right? Um, but but more than that. Um, so I think that is certainly happening. Um, I think what's what's interesting about what you were saying about like the PA and and sort of this, it's more than corruption, right? Because it's now like a structural, there's a structural problem, right? When we mm-hmm. talk about trying to liberate Palestine, whatever that may mean, we're not talking about just replacing some of the people that that are the faces of the PA, right, um, of the PLO. We're talking about like actually a different form, a different system, um, a, a different way of relating to the struggle and certainly a different way of relating to the people that are um, um, most exploited and oppressed um, by this. Um, and I think for that, you're entirely right. Like the, the way that, well, first the IMF, the IMF role in, in, in Palestine, um, the effects of the the 90s Oslo peace process, the demobilization that happened on a large scale. I think all of that is what we're seeing today. Um, But we're also seeing that globally, there's this renewed distrust in government and this, Mm -hmm. um, I think, reinvigorated uh, frustration and passion for a different type of society. Um, So there's all this potential and certainly in the United States. And then the question is like, okay, well, what do we do with that potential? You know, is it going to become something or is it going to slowly fizzle out? And I'm, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic that um, we're heading in the right way um, in the United States in terms of like what we're pushing for and, and that potential exists. And I hope that we can, we can do something with it. Um, but it is certainly true that there is a new growing socialist. Um, and if not, if not socialist and anti-capitalist, um, um, movement in the U.S. Uh, and one that I think Palestine is central to. Um, but like I said, it's it's all so um, fragile right now. Um, and so I think there's so many different directions it could go. I mean, I don't know if that answers your question. No, 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 no absolutely. Listen, I think I mean it, it's complex because the a left an organized left in Palestine doesn't exist for many reasons. One is the structure you talk about. Um, that's either co-opted or repressed. And obviously there's a shrinking space from, for any type of political organizing here that might allow for a, a new iteration of a socialist movement or a socialist party to come together. Um, and, and I think that that's probably one of the main reasons. Um, but I think someone who spent time in the US who grew up in Palestine is looking now at the US. It's very inspiring to see I think the growth of socialist politics in the U.S., the socialist movement, and the fact that Palestine is at the center of it. And I mean, I'm sure that that comes back to you and many others who've been fighting for this for a very long time. 
you know, when you, when you see progressive candidates talk about Palestine in a certain way, I think just to, to feel uh, heard uh, and to feel represented, even fractionally, I think is, is such, a, such a difference from where we were a long time ago. So I share your cautious optimism. But I, I mean, a lot of people don't know about that, that um, uh, landscape um, because I don't think everyone is aware the level of organizing and engagement and advocacy that goes on there. Yes, definitely. So I think there's, there's multiple levels of, of um, activism and, and change that's happening. I think on the grassroots level, when we look at campuses, I think that's one of the the uh, really uh, hopeful and inspiring uh, places where we're seeing change. So, you know, we have all of these student groups from Students for Justice in Palestine um, or Jewish Voice for Peace, um, as well as others uh, like Youth Democratic Socialists of America, et cetera, uh, that are putting forward not just um, divestment resolutions, although I think that's one big part, but that are also like agitating on campus um, and really pushing people to think about why Palestine matters um, for you as a college student. How is our university invested in this or that? Um, how does it help prop up and uh, reproduce uh, US militarism, et cetera? And I think we've seen so many wins on college campuses in the last couple of years that is indicative of this shift that's happening um, among, uh, among you know, the average American in the United States who's starting to question, why do we support Israel this much? Why are we giving you a blank check of $3.8 billion every year while our infrastructure is crumbling here, while we don't have healthcare? Um, you know, and the, the list goes on. Um, but so that's, I think that's the first thing is on campuses. And one way you can really see that this, that something is changing, that ideologically we're beginning to win this, this, this battle is because of how much money Israel is um, is funneling into um, into this campus activism, right? Into fighting it, into the most basic form of Palestine advocacy is met with um, tens of thousands of dollars in like legal fees and smear campaigns and um, um, blacklists, etc. Anyway, so I think that's one level that that is definitely shifting and growing. Um, I think another is um, DSA and other formations like it that are uh, really pushing for adopting um, open anti-Zionist um, stances and positions. And I think that's very, very important because it's pushing the narrative in the right direction and uh, very outwardly and confidently saying Zionism as a political ideology um, is what's propping up Israel, is what's reproducing this apartheid state, this colonization, and we need to name that. Um, and I think that has actually just taken uh, strides in dispelling this idea of this being a religious conflict, which is, which honestly for the United States is huge because a lot of the attacks on Palestine advocacy in the U.S. usually come in the form of, you know, you're anti-Semitic, um, this is a, a religious struggle between Muslims and Jews, etc. And of course, all of it using the war on terror rhetoric and Islamophobia and the surveillance state, etc. So, so I think really naming Zionism um, and, and, and going after that is has been a huge uh, step uh, the third, I mean, I could go on and on, but I think this, the third, right, is the congressional level. Mm -hmm. um, not even just Congress, state, you know, local, state, and then Congress, um, where you have more and more candidates that are, uh, you know, openly supporting Palestine and not, not even in a superficial, like, sloganeering way, right, but in like a 
in a material way by saying um, people have the right to boycott, right? By going a step beyond that and saying, not only do people have a right to boycott, but it's actually the right strategy to use. And we're talking about just five years ago where you couldn't say that. I mean, you would be smeared and isolated and just sort of dropped on the sidelines, never to be seen again if you said this. Like, you know, you were just, you would be delegitimized completely. And now we have people in Congress saying BDS is the right strategy. Let's pursue boycotts. Um, and then on this, on the local level, um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example. I think there's so many examples, but one example in New York City uh, for New York State Assembly, there's a candidate. His name is Zuhran Mamdani. He's not a candidate, actually. He he won. And um, this is someone who radicalized around Palestine in college, who helped found the Students for Justice in Palestine and is now in the New York State Assembly talking about, you know, how do we help uplift the Palestinian struggle? How do we make it so that we can end U.S. military funding to Israel? Um, right. This is an elected official um, yeah. in New York City, which, by the way, is a hotbed of, you know, the Israel lobby and Zionist groups. Right. It's, it's New York. Um, and then, on you know, on other levels, people like um, Ilhan Ahmad, who recently came out and said, I support not just the right to boycott, but boycotts as a strategy. Um, obviously, there's Rashid Tlaib, who I'm sure most people know about already, um, who's who's Palestinian, right? Who's who like talks about her family in the occupied West Bank. Who who would have thought in Congress we're going to see that? And I say all of this not to say, oh, this means our work is done or that these people have no flaws or that we agree 100 percent on everything. No, no. Far from it. Right. But it's it's the, it's a step and, and it's being pushed in the right direction. Um, and that a lot of these people are being held accountable by the movement. And I think that's really important, right? It's not theatrics. They're not doing it because they think they're going to get, um, you know, victory points or they're going to get more followers or whatever. I mean, it's the opposite, right? They're smeared left and right. They have death threats um, um, all the time. But it's it's that we're, we're pushing people in the right direction and we're pushing them in a way that's not about making moral arguments, right? We need mm -hmm. to push past ethics and moralism. Sure, support Palestine because it's the right thing to do. But what does that mean? But it's about supporting Palestine because materially in the US, we have the power to change what's happening on the ground if we cut US funding. That's a huge step. And that's that's our role in the US, right? It's to cut that military funding. I think that's one of the main things we need to be doing here. Um, but also it's understanding that actually, you know, the, the freedom of Palestinians is connected with our freedom um, in the US with freedom of the Arab masses, um, et cetera. And so it's actually building towards our future future as well. And of course, socialism gives us the tools to make these arguments and to see them happen on the ground in a concrete way beyond just saying free, free Palestine, because yes, free, free Palestine, but also like, how are we going to do it? So yeah, that's that's like a roundabout way, but hopefully that was helpful. It's, always, it's also a very perfect segue to, to my question about why you decided to write the book. Um, I think, you know, it seems that you're presenting a very strong case um, beyond the moral and the ethical, but also to an extent around the material. I mean, especially the chapter where you lay out how to move forward. And is that kind of what was the thinking around that is, is to offer a way to introduce Palestine through a socialist lens, but also situated within the, the movement within the US? Yes, I think exactly. You know, when we when we started it, it started, you know, the book project started in like early 2018. Um, so the, by the time we were wrapping up, the world had changed a lot. But it was, I think there were two, two 
sort of audiences we had in mind. One was this burgeoning socialist movement in the U.S. Um, that had a, you know, it's it's a spectrum of politics, right? DSA is a big tent organization. Um, and we wanted to have the arguments we thought were most important for people who called themselves socialist to know um, and to be able to articulate and respond if, if they're questioned about Palestine or, or why they support it. And for us, obviously, one of the most important ones, and it's chapter one of the book, is understanding the the uh, the creation of Israel and understanding Zionism's role, and of course the Nakba, and that you really can't divorce those things. You can't talk about Zionism without talking about the Nakba. You can't talk about the Nakba without talking about Zionism. Um, and then, of course, um, the role of the U.S. because you know it's it's geared mostly towards a U.S. audience. So laying out some of those basic arguments and solidarity, you know, Black Palestine solidarity, um, etc. Then, um, so that's that's yeah right. That's the first audience. The second was thinking about um, for the Palestine movement, for anyone that's a part of it, what does it mean to want to fight for a free Palestine um, in a way that allows us to go beyond simply changing the face of our oppressors, right? Mm -hmm. But like, what is what, what do we envision as the kind of, of Palestine, the kind of uh, a free and, and liberated Middle East that we're fighting for? Um, and, and here, that's where we brought in the chapters about like the history of the left in Palestine um, Mustafa Ahmad's chapters, uh, Tofi's chapter about the role of the PLO, the role of neoliberalism, and a few others. You know, I think even even Defna's chapter about like, how do we respond? A lot of socialists are asked, well, you know, why can't we just, you know, build solidarity with Israeli workers? And it's like, well, let's understand their material position in Israel and why they're actually not our ally, because mm -hmm. they are they are connected to the state and they need the state to sustain themselves. That, that's another argument. But um, anyway, so it was, it was about thinking about, okay, what does it mean to build a different type of society? And why does socialism offer us um, a, a guide, a sort of roadmap to thinking about what a, what a free society looks like? Um, one where the driving force is not profit, right? Where, um, where we're not building off of the exploitation of the workers and the oppressed, where we're not treated as disposable. But in fact, a society where it's democratically run by workers, um, by the oppressed, by the most vulnerable, um, both in their workplaces, in the government, in their communities, etc. So that's that's the thinking behind why why the book, and certainly why now, especially as we enter this new Biden administration. Absolutely, it's it's more more critical now than ever, and I I really uh, recommend uh, anyone who's listening to to go out and, and get the book. Um, it's it's very thought provoking and educational. Um, one last question uh, I wanted to ask you before we wrap up is, listen, you, there's, there's brilliant uh, work being done around Palestine and the U.S. Uh, within the progressive movement, within the socialist movement. And I, I always wonder, how can we connect that more to what's happening in Palestine? As, as we talked about a bit, there's, there's obviously a gap here in terms of leftist socialist thinking or mobilizing or organizing but also just in terms of resisting oppression and apartheid. Um, there's a lot of different things happening. And I think strengthening the ties between what's happening here in the US and around the world is, is critical, I think, to, to strengthening the movement as a whole. So I, I wonder what your, your thoughts about that are and, and how may we build that bridge and strengthen it? Yeah, so I mean, in some ways, my response is, what do, you, what do you think, right? Because you're on the ground there. Um, but that's, that's a lazy response. I think, that, I think that more 
uh, more grassroots connection, like beyond some of the established organizations, um, goes a long way in understanding how organizing looks in different places and what's needed. Um, because I think it's, I think we have to approach this as in the US, organizers have particular goals and particular responsibilities that they need to focus on that doesn't make sense for people in Palestine to and vice versa. So then the question is like, how do we uplift one another's um, in a way that moves both forward? So I think more of the grassroots connecting um, beyond some of the NGOs is extremely important. I also think certain organizations that are grassroots organizations that are being fought um, by Israel, but also by elements of the Palestinian leadership, organizations like Al-Qaus um, also need to uh, be able to, we need to figure out how we can help them to organize um, and help them disperse their message and, and their strategies uh, for, for mobilizing. Because I think they're putting forward really, really important interventions mm -hmm. into the movement about how we should organize, um, about how we mobilize, about what it looks like to build um, in an anti, how, how it looks like to, sorry, inter, intertwine anti-capitalism into our organizing. And I think mm -hmm. that's extremely, extremely important um, in, in, in building anything. And in one way that we here in the US, I think can connect directly. So those are two that come to mind. The third that I'll say is um, more uh, integration of um, uh, other Arab liberation struggles into how we talk about Palestine. Um, and I think figuring out, like when we say we want to connect with folks on the ground, we want to um, uplift and help to uh, mobilize and organize um, with Palestinians. I'm thinking, for example, like the Palestinian farmers, right? Um, and what, what they had been doing the last few months. So what does it look like to connect that to some of the other labor struggles, for example, happening in, in, in the Middle East? Whether it's the teachers in Jordan, for example, um, or, or in Bahrain. Anyway, so I think, I think that's another that's another. Uh, weakness that we have that that we need to help build. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I, I do fully endorse that. And the Palestinian society has changed so much under Oslo. I think we are still grappling with what it means and what it looks like. I think you know the the nineties uh, brought on some 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 changes, but actually, I think the the Fayadism in that era. Uh, created uh, via uh, the the neoliberal or accelerated the neoliberal regime uh, lending debts and created uh, you know a Palestinian middle class that that lives on a bubble that is about to burst and was probably the main driver behind um, pacifying I think Palestinians in a way. And we're a majority uh, young, you know, young society under 30. The average age in Palestine is 21. And there hasn't been any form of participation in politics. I mean, the first and second, the father were, were, were not um, uh, momentous uh, periods in, 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 in the lives of the majority of Palestinians here. So there's no, there's no understanding, or there's no experience in that. So yeah, it's, it's a very, you know, we still are grappling. What what does that apathy mean? What does it look like? How can it be broken? How can people be, people be organized in a space that's shrinking by our own people uh, and and our own authority? And then obviously, uh, living within that context of apartheid, uh, it's very complex. It's very complex. 
Um, and I think it's very important because we don't have that uh, national political system where you and I as Palestinians, one in, one in Ramallah, another in New York, can uh, participate, uh, be represented, have our voices heard and help shape a more unifying vision towards the future. That's missing. And I think for me, the, it's critical to help build that. Uh, and that to me is the bridge that is needed more than ever. Is it the PLO? Um, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I, I, I don't have answers to that question, but we, we need that political system um, to be able to engage. And in the meantime, I think it's building the, the ties between organizations, grassroots, and connecting it to wider struggles. Absolutely, I 100% agree. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very hard time. It's a very difficult time. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll just say two brief things about that. I think one of the things that you that you touched on, which is just like democratizing our spaces, um, and you know, so much easier said than done. Because what does it mean to democratize? For example, the PLO. Like, could you? Is that even possible? Or is it just time to, you know, build something new uh, completely? But I think thinking about democratization uh, amidst all of these sham elections and um, sham performances by by politicians who purport to stand for the cause, but in fact reproduce the same um, the same relationships of oppression. And then I think the second thing about like the fragmentation, you know, when, when we were talking, I was thinking about like Gaza, right? Like the 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 thing that's maybe sometimes talked about least, or one talked about talked about only in terms of like humanitarian aid, but not talked about as a political struggle um, that's part of ending the occupation. Um, or what's happening in Jerusalem, uh, like in Sheikh Jarrah and, and, and et cetera, um, and how all of this fragmentation, both um, physical and abstract, is all by design. Like this is what settler colonialism does. This is, this is in fact what it thrives on, is fragmenting us geographically. Like you said, you're in normal Lyme in New York. Um, and then also in terms of uh, ideas and, and in all the different abstract ways that we're fragmented. Um, that makes it so difficult to organize um, and to mobilize, no matter what, you know, regardless of whether or not we have Zoom or a good internet connection, um, that, that doesn't really matter. Um, and so I, I think reckoning with that is, is really hard because it feels like a dead end. Um, but then you know that there's going to be a, a, a trigger, something's going to happen, and there is going to be um, mass upheaval. And then the question is, what happens after that? Um, and in the same way that happened, you know, with the Arab Spring 10 years ago, and then it's this ongoing revolution and counter-revolution. There's a, just a very, very interesting uh, note is that from 67 to 86 in Palestine, um, you know, once, once the rest of Palestine was occupied, um, the, you know, people were living under military uh, occupation and the, at that time, Palestinians started building community networks and organizing and infrastructure and tackling fragmentation uh, in, in different ways, but also connecting to Palestinians in 48. And that infrastructure, that those communities are what allowed the first intifada to happen once it was triggered. And obviously, if you scale that up to Palestinian communities everywhere. I think it's about replicating that uh, network theory in a way by saying, and that's why I think it's very important for us to, to connect 
always, whether we're here or New York and, and, and learn from each other and, and grow um, because fragmentation is, I think the biggest, one of the biggest obstacles we face. Um, but also when that trigger happens is to be ready and, and to, to be able to go in the same direction. Definitely, definitely. And you know, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, we have yet to see what will happen. And I think there's a lot of work to be done and, and, and still a lot, a lot to fight for um, on, on so many different levels. But, but I think, like I said, for the first time in a long time, there is a left that's growing. And I think that that, that is exciting. It's, it's inspiring to see, as someone who's here, it's inspiring for me to see in the US and inspiring to see so many amazing young Palestinians, you know, leading the charge and advocating. So thank you, first of all, uh, and we're cheering you on uh, from here. And, uh, you know, please, for everyone listening, again, go get the book. It's, it's really inspiring and educational. And uh, thank you for your time, uh, Sumaya. It was lovely to have you on. Thanks, Adam. It was great. Awesome.